Welcome to the State Historical Society of North Dakota's podcasts. In June 1998, the remains of Scattered Village were unexpectedly encountered in a federally supported street renovation project on First Street Northeast in the city of Mandan. This discovery led to an emergency salvage program involving fieldwork, laboratory analysis, and technical reporting funding jointly by the city of Mandan and federal dollars through the North Dakota Department of Transportation. What follows is part one of a 2004 interview with Dr. Stanley A. Ayler from the Paleoculture Research Group regarding the findings of the Scattered Village investigations. I'm Stan Ayler. I'm Research Director at Paleocultural Research Group, Flagstaff, Arizona. In terms of training in archaeology, I went to undergraduate school at uh, University of Tennessee and graduate school at the University of Missouri. And at Missouri, I got interested in Plains Village archaeology, which is the northern plains in North and South Dakota. And I've studied that, you know, for three decades or so now and uh, lived in North Dakota for a long time, which was a nice base and, you know, developed a real foundation in, in Plains Village archaeology. And after moving to Flagstaff, just continued to work there. That's the primary area that I do work in the Northern Plains. For the last several years, um, I've been in the field and our group has been in the field for two to three months each summer, usually. And working in that environment, you're pretty restricted in how, you know, how much you can work during the year. It's not like Arizona. So we have a small window, but fortunately I'm able to go to the field and we, we've done field work every year for quite a number of years. And so our years divided between a few months of field work and nine months of lab work and writing and bringing things together. It, you know, I've been fortunate, I guess, I've worked on a lot of fairly large and interesting sites. So each one really has a lot to say. Um, perhaps little small sites, little camping spots or whatever where people live might become redundant after a while, but um, each one is unique. And, you know, Scattered Village is different from all the other major villages at Heart River. That's one of the things that we've learned. And, and that's what makes it, you know, especially fun. I mean, since we did Scattered Village, we've worked at... Uh, Another one of the large villages at Heart River, the double-ditch site, and, and it's, it's quite different in many ways, and we discovered things there we never imagined. So, um, And then there was a, a slant village project before Scattered Village, and each of those you know, provided their own stories. They're all within a few miles of each other, and they're all contemporaneous, and they're all communicating, and they're all, we don't know that Scattered Village is Mandan for sure, but many of the others there are. and. And whoever was at Scattered, they're communicating with these other villagers just within almost, you know, eyesight. And uh, but regardless of that proximity, they each had their own patterns and life ways that were, you know, habits and so on. They were quite, in some ways, quite distinct that we see here when we study things in the lab. I mean, we're looking right now at with Richard Krause's help and Mark Mitchell's. We're looking at patterns in pottery production. And we already knew that there were patterns in stylistic decoration and so on that you could use to tell one village from another. But we also were, were looking deeper into those more fundamental traditions and seeing pottery production is perhaps quite distinct from site to site. And uh, ways of making stone tools. Uh, 
they may all be working with pretty much the same raw materials, but they have different production technologies, and those are very deeply ingrained as well. And they tell something about where these the people in each village might have come from. We don't understand the whole story, but uh, things that are not so much decorative and stylistic, but are more fundamental to, to just how you approach a task, uh, probably are deeply ingrained in their tradition and, you know, go the, the roots may lie several hundred years back. So uh, we're seeing those kinds of distinctions and we're seeing, uh, we're seeing distinctions in uh, production of certain kinds of artifacts that were emphasized at Scattered Village like antler bracelets and decorative items. They were, uh, and that's a really exciting thing to, to learn that, that uh, at one village sort of specialized in producing one thing that we see appearing at, at many other villages, and so it's probably a production center and trade and distribution to others. So, and what uh, is that? What is an antler bracelet? Um, an antler bracelet is just a very delicate little strip of antler that is curved in, in its end form into a C-shaped um, uh, delicate object that's apparently wrapped around the, the, the wrist or maybe the ankle and tied on either end. It's just a simple little decorative item, but its production is, you know, there are many steps in it and they're delicate and easy to break and so on. And uh, they're widespread in occurrence. Um, we see them, see them used in many villages, but we've seen it scattered for the first time. This is a place where they're making them and we see the whole production record there. The excavations at Scattered were fairly extensive, and so we sampled you know, a fairly large volume of, of artifact-bearing sediment. So we, we had a, a, large, a lot of material to look at, and so in that uh, array of artifacts, we, we found pieces of antler uh, bracelet production, elements of it, all the way from the earliest stages, where they're working with a fairly large piece of raw material, um, an unmodified elk antler, and this is what they start with, is, is huge, and it's like four feet long. These bracelets are six inches long when they're finished in a, you know, an eighth of an inch thick, a tiny little thing. But they start with a huge elk antler and work through that to produce you know, dozens of bracelets from one antler. And so at Scattered, we were able to see the production pieces and the residue from making them. There's several steps in the process where you just end up with pieces that are not useful and they get tossed away and systematically uh, trimmed off and, and then discarded, just waste. And so that's what we saw that was new there in addition to the, the end product. So Scattered Village um, having three major components, and, and this is a well-recognized pattern for the prehistoric Mandans, prehistoric Adatsas, the Plains Village people, Arikaras as well in general. Um, and one, one major element was was hunting and particularly hunting bison. Um, the Plains Village sites and Scattered Village, no exception, was just loaded with bison bone, tremendous amounts of bison bone. And so they're hunting bison not far from the village. They're they're taking bison out of the river that have drowned in the in the fall and winter. And when the spring breakup occurs, the carcasses come down the river and they've been kind of refrigerated and they pull them out and they were a great delicacy historically. And so that's one big component is, is bison hunted or, or harvested or uh, gathered, captured, whatever. And uh, the other is, is the gardening activities and growing crops. And corn was the, the real staple. 
Uh, beans were quite important. Uh, sunflowers were an important crop. They raised tobacco as well. And, and there was a great deal of attention given to raising crops. Uh, you know, we have a whole technology that centers around that. We have archaeological features that are related to that, storing the excess crops and the food stores would get people through the winter and also provide uh, something useful for trade. And so that's a very important element. And then there's a lot of gathering of things in the natural environment, uh, wild plant materials in particular. And, and, you know, we have people that are part of the project that study all those things um, intensively. We have a, a botanist who specializes in looking at seeds and telling us about the wild as well as uh, gardened crops that they were involved with. So it's, a, it's kind of a three-part economy, and Scattered Village was not, not unique in that regard. We were particularly interested in the, how those, which of those might have been most emphasized there as maybe a signal to how long they had been involved in the gardening system because many of the surrounding people were not gardeners. They were more nomadic and they hunted but and gathered, but they didn't raise crops. And one of the theories that their ideas that we were trying to explore scattered was is the possibility that these were newcomers to the Missouri Valley and they just taken up gardening recently. And so we looked at, at the proportions of wild plants and garden cultivated plants to try to understand that and and the answer that we found was that these are well-established gardeners they weren't learning it uh, they had the whole technology and a strong emphasis on gardening and not much emphasis on the gathering part of it when the scattered village site was discovered construction was in progress on first street and uh, the street had actually been built uh, and concrete new fresh concrete had been laid and the curbs were in place and the only thing that hadn't been done was all the work with sidewalks and utilities coming from um, the street to the houses along there. And so that was our, that was the only area uh, that we could work in was this little narrow strip on either side of First Street up to people's front porches, basically, private land. And so uh, we had to figure out where to dig in this little window that we had. We had these little narrow strips that we could look at. And the archaeology that's under the street had been destroyed, so we're just left with a little bit. And so we, you know, we surveyed as best we could along these strips just to see what was on the ground surface. And then we, we dug little trenches along the curbs to, to get a view of the depth of deposits and, and the amount of artifacts and so on. And, and we, we saw in that, we saw some hearths that were central hearths in, in houses or earth lodges, and so they, those gave us focal points. And... We saw burned earth lodge remains in another place and gave us another focal. We saw a deep uh, midden, a trash deposit, you know, with huge amounts of bison bone. And so localized spots, and those became what we called our blocks. And so we started a kind of a focused excavation in each of those, and there were eight, eight of those along a, a two-city block area within the city of Mandan. And so that was our structure in a, in a broad sense for how we organized things. We found eight places to focus on. And within the whole system, then we established an arbitrary grid. We use a transit and surveying instruments to shoot in control points, and we shoot in a, a one-meter grid is usually what we work in, so the units are one meter on each side. They're squares, and and so everything we excavate then is done with one-meter squares. And, and that allows us simply to take notes in little small pieces that we can then put back together in the lab and we can create maps and put the picture back together. 
we have to take it apart in little pieces and we have to take records in little pieces and then we have to reassemble it. And so the, the one meter grid is just designed to help us reassemble with accuracy, you know, whatever we found. And so when they, within each block, within the house, the house in block six or the house in block eight, uh, we work in our grid and, and we put it, put it back together in the lab. And we also have vertical control, which means we excavate the layers as we see them in the ground. We carefully pick the layers apart and keep everything separate, you know, from the roof fall, from the floor of the house, and from the subfloor, the pits that might be below the floor. So those are, it's just all part of the, what is tedious but necessary to reconstruct what's there. And you're working in, like, people's front yards? Literally, literally. Uh, I mean, we, you know, we had an excavation block, block six, it was butted right up against somebody's front porch or front sidewalk to their door was been lifted up and we were working right there. We found a burned house, we found uh, human burials and the, the residents would stand on their porch and look and see what we were doing and would be amazed at what they had been walking over. Uh, many residents didn't really have an idea that the village was there, other people did, were, had been aware of it all their lives, and just, you know, but it was nothing they really commented on or made a, a point of discussion about, I don't think. But, um, you know, if we'd interviewed people known to ahead of time, we would have learned about the village before the project revealed it to everybody. But uh, anyway, yes, we were right there. It drew a lot of attention. We had people. You know, they couldn't drive their cars in their driveways, so a lot of people walk into their houses and walking by our excavation every day. And, and They had no choice about this? Well, the street, they wanted the street project, and the archaeology came as a byproduct of that uh, very unexpectedly. And, and we actually planned the archaeology in such a way that it didn't slow the street project down at all. And we were very fortunate we could do that. I mean, people were alerted. Immediately when the discovery was made, we were brought in. We, we organized the fuel program in like two, three weeks and, and, and began it. It lasted about 12, 14 weeks, and the street construction continued. This was the very starting end of the first street project, and so all the construction continued towards the center of town while we were doing our, our archaeology. Then they came back and did the sidewalk work, and everything was finished by a target date, and everything was fine. So... We started in July, and by October, everybody's sidewalk and access to their houses, driveways, everything was in place. It's now a nice, neat, newly landscaped neighborhood in in city of Mandan. Because this is, we worked within city property. This belongs to municipality of the state of North Dakota, and by law, all archaeological remains belong to the state and have to be curated at the state museum and the straight curation center. So that's where um, most of the artifacts are now. We have a few things here in Flagstaff that you know we're using for uh, production of the video and educational purposes and they will go into exhibits that will be um, put placed in the city library in the city of Mandan so the people in the city of Mandan have this kind of full feedback and return to be able to see basically what we found. So uh, nothing will stay in Arizona. I mean, we're very temporarily involved in the in the project, so it all goes back to the state of North Dakota. Where does the name Scattered Village come from? Uh, it comes from Mandan traditions. Uh, 
accounts of, of ancient villages that were written down by ethnographers or anthropologists who study uh, the native peoples in, in North America. And most of these accounts were recorded, uh, well, they began to be recorded when Europeans first came into the area in the 1800s, but um, serious ethnography, organized ethnography was, you know, was done in the early 1900s in a couple of decades or so. And uh, so older Mandan people and Hadatsa people were interviewed by anthropologists and, and they identified this general area as a place where a village once stood. It was, they called Scattered Village. It's their name for this community. It was uh, one of their names, at least. And for a community, it was very dispersed. It was said to be uh, actually a, a series of little farmsteads or hamlets or concentrations of dwellings among croplands that spread across the valley of the Hart River at this place. And this is right where the Hart and the Missouri Rivers come together and there's a big floodplain there. It's their farmland. And so Scattered Village is the site, as the name got attached to this general location, comes from that Mandan tradition. And that worked its way into archaeological records about village sites that, you know, we think exist. Uh, and so there became, in the arche early archaeological records, a a place called Scattered Village that was said to be under the city of Mandan today, but it was never accurately recorded exactly where it was. And so um, this project revealed the location of something that generally fits that, that old tradition. And that's why we use the name. It, that, that tradition fits this location best. But uh, where we worked was only a tiny little place, and whether it's part of a big dispersed community, we, I can't say. Um, much of that area is under the interstate highway and other kinds of development. So, and there's actually a lot of uh, question about which village we actually worked at, in, because there are other traditions that identify other sites in the same vicinity. There are not only other Mandan traditions, there are, are traditions of the Hadatsas, who are a different tribal group of people that, that lived in the vicinity among the Mandans, and they have a tradition of having a village in this approximately the same area. So um, we chose Scattered Village as the name because it was already embedded in the archaeological literature for a location approximately there. But uh, exactly whose village it is is an entirely different question. In our narrow little look at the site, we found remains of three earth lodges, and two of those were destroyed by fire. And we know one of them was destroyed with many artifacts still in use in the lodge. And so that was an abrupt interruption. Uh, but, you know, our, our view of, of Scattered Village is very small, and so we don't know whether that's part of a bigger pattern. And that's something, an event that, that uh, occurred across the village and was related to abandonment. Um, we don't know why that house burned. It may have been accidental and may not have been the last thing that happened there. And so it's just, you know, it's, it's one of those things we can't have a complete answer to. But it's a, that was a signal that at least somebody's, some family's occupation was very abruptly interrupted. Um, it, some of the traditions speak of, one of the Hadatsa traditions speak of the village their village that may relate to the site we're at as, as having been uh, abandoned simply because things got too crowded and the Adatsas were 
so linguistically distinct from the Mandans, and they kind of moved into Mandan territory and were accepted by the Mandans on a friendly basis. But they were kind of friendly in a friendly way, invited also to leave. And uh, uh, I mean, they didn't fight wars and battles over this, but they were invited to move north where other Hadatsas lived, and to kind of take some of the crowding off of that area. And so there might have been frictions and and so on that that may develop between communities, but. But again, without knowing that this is a Hadatsa site, we don't know where that tradition is an accurate reflection. But we do know the site was abandoned uh, around 1700, and that's a number of decades before many other villages were abandoned in the Heart River area. And, and we know those were, a lot of the other big Mandan sites were abandoned because of disease and, and warfare. Well, that concludes this podcast episode from the State Historical Society of North Dakota. Stay tuned for part two of the Scattered Village Investigations, as we will be offering new video casts as well as our traditional podcast coming in January. An exhibit on Scattered Village is on display at the Public Library in Mandan, North Dakota. As always, for more information on the State Historical Society of North Dakota, visit us at www.nd.gov slash HIST. Thanks for listening.